Hi, welcome to another edition of Health Affairs This Week. I'm Chris Fleming. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Rachel Sachs, an associate professor at the Washington University School of Law. Rachel's a nationally recognized expert on health law and policy, particularly with regard to prescription drugs and drug pricing, among other areas. And readers of Health Affairs blog have had the opportunity to enjoy a great deal of Rachel's work, uh, notably her very timely and comprehensive analyses of the many uh, initiatives regarding drug pricing that have come down the pike in recent years, both through uh, legislation and through regulation. Uh, so I want to welcome you, Rachel, and uh, say that I hope you're doing well and would have been uh, challenging times, to say the least. Thank you very much for the invitation, Chris. I'm happy to be here and happy to be talking about these timely issues. As you know, when the Democrats took over the House in the 2018 elections, uh, one of their first bills, H.R. 3, was a drug pricing bill. At the time, the Republicans controlled the uh, Senate and the White House, so the bill was blocked from becoming law. But you know, things have changed now, and the Democrats control both houses of Congress and the presidency. And the provisions of that bill, H.R. 3, look like they're coming back as part of a, the vast infrastructure bill that was recently proposed by President Biden. So uh, given that, I'm hoping that you could uh, take our readers through some of the provisions of that legislation and, and talk about what they would do. H.R. 3 contains three main elements. So one, it recognizes that our existing drug pricing systems create incentives for drug companies to raise their list prices over time, often more rapidly than inflation. And so one of the goals of H.R. 3 is to control and potentially reverse price increases for drugs in both Medicare Part B and Part D. Another element of H.R. 3 is that it's trying to tackle the underlying problem of high drug prices by giving the Secretary of Health and Human Services the ability to negotiate drug prices. And then the third element is that it recognizes that out-of-pocket costs for many patients are just too high, and so it restructures the Medicare Part D benefit to provide financial relief to many Part D beneficiaries. So with that overall structure in mind, as you said, one of the key principles within HR3 is to try to limit the rate at which companies increase the price of their drugs. And this is not a new idea in American drug pricing. So this is something that Medicaid actually does. And various governmental reports indicate that this kind of inflationary rebate is very successful in helping Medicaid negotiate its drug prices or, or get lower drug prices. And so the idea here is to extend this inflationary rebate to Medicare. So just to, to clarify, so you're talking about if there was an increase that exceeded the rate of inflation, uh, then the manufacturer would have to, to rebate the uh, excess back. So you're capturing essentially that excessive increase. Yes, that's right. So let me, uh, with that, let me move on to the second part uh, that you were talking about, which is uh, the giving the federal government the authority to negotiate with uh, drug makers over prices. Again, you know, this is an idea that has been certainly talked about a lot. Uh, what would be the approach of, of HR3 in that area? So HR3 uses one, but not the only way of doing this. There are many ways of giving the secretary the authority to negotiate prescription drug prices. And the tool that HR3 uses is international reference pricing. So 
longtime readers of the blog will think back to President Trump's most favored nation rule, which would have aimed to do something similar only in the Medicare Part B program. And the idea here is to look at the prices other countries are paying for the very same prescription drugs, recognizing that they're often many times lower than the prices we pay here, and to index the prices that the secretary is is attempting to pay to those international prices as a result. Well, thanks. And then uh, the third part uh, you also mentioned was the uh, restructuring of the Part D benefit and, and trying to maybe cut down on some of the, the cost burdens on, on seniors, on Medicare beneficiaries. Uh, how would that work in this legislation? That's right. So the existing Medicare Part D benefit is unbounded. So there's actually no cap on patients cost sharing for Part D benefits. And it's quite complicated. It has several different phases where patients uh, cost sharing obligations are different throughout those phases. So HR3 would cap patients out-of-pocket costs at $2,000 per year, which is more generous than analogous bills. So the Senate Finance Committee put forward a bipartisan or a somewhat bipartisan drug pricing package, which would have capped out-of-pocket costs at $3,100, for instance. And um, one sort of notable thing about that, you know, obviously, uh, you know, we've been in an era where uh, health policy, politics surrounding health policy, as in almost any area, have been very polarized. Uh, if I recall, there was some, uh, at least some bipartisan popularity around that that third part. Uh, so there might be some possibility of sort of having on that area, at least in sort of reaching across the aisle and getting some support. Uh, is that is is that an accurate statement? I would say that there's broad bipartisan support for restructuring the Part D benefit. However, that is the least likely of the three elements of HR3 to save money. And actually, the CBO scored it as costing a small amount of money, about $9 billion over a decade. Now, that's in part due to the generosity of the House's design. So the CBO scored the Senate finance proposal as saving approximately $34, $35 billion over a decade, in part because it's less generous and in part because of the way it allocates responsibility between plants and pharmaceutical companies. So there are ways to think about designing it so that it saves a little bit of money. But compared to the CBO scoring the drug price negotiation as saving more than $450 billion, it's just not a price saver in the way that some of those other elements are. So you mentioned that the you know the drug your, the drug pricing negotiation part of it would save quite a bit of money. Uh, what about the the first part, the inflation uh, rebates? So CBO scored the inflationary rebates in HR three as saving about thirty six billion dollars over a decade. Now they scored the inflationary rebates in the Senate Finance Bill as being uh, more cost saving about. Uh, 57 billion in just part D and another 10 or 11 in part B. And part of that certainly might be that the Senate Finance Committee uh, didn't include a negotiation provision. So I think thinking about the interaction of the proposals is also likely to be important there. So, so Rachel, uh, thanks for sort of summarizing HR3 and what we might see in the infrastructure package. There, of course, have been uh, many other areas. Uh, where drug pricing has been addressed and and been at issue. Uh, what are some of the other developments we should be keeping an eye on in this area? 
So one drug pricing issue that could recur in the infrastructure package is the rebate rule. And longtime blog readers will remember that the rebate rule was finalized at the end of the Trump administration. And basically the goal was to eliminate the legal safe harbor, creating the existing Medicare Part D rebate structure where drug companies maintain high list prices, but negotiate sometimes substantial discounts off of those prices to obtain lower net prices. This negotiation with the PBMs is not always passed along to patients at the point of sale who often pay these high list prices more than their plans are paying for these drugs. So the goal of the rebate rule is to pass these discounts along to beneficiaries at the point of sale. Now, the CMS, Office of the Actuary, at the time the notice of proposed rulemaking was released, estimated that it would increase government spending by $196 billion over a decade. The CBO projected it a little smaller than that, about $177 billion over a decade, but a substantial increase still in governmental spending. And so if the infrastructure package were to include a repeal of that rule, which hasn't gone into effect yet, but is tied up in court right now, that could be claimed as a savings, potentially, even though it wouldn't change right now, again, because it's been delayed temporarily, it wouldn't have a practical impact. Well, well, thanks, Rachel. Uh, I think that's a, a great place to, to close for today. We are uh, very appreciative. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And uh, to listeners, be sure to subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and look in the show notes uh, for today's episode uh, where we'll post uh, links to some of the uh, blog pieces we talked about. Uh, thanks, and we'll see you next week.